Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and love all things tech. And I also love speculative fiction, and I really love science fiction. No big shock there, I'm sure. I love stories that involve cool and futuristic technology and, you know, technically stories that that play out uh, in such a way that if done well, it says something interesting about what it is to be human. Uh, When you get down to it, a lot of science fiction isn't so much about the pew-pew lasers and the zoom-zoom spaceships. It's really more about stuff like resilience and hope and hubris and enmity and other very, you know, human qualities. So when you strip it all away, a good science fiction story should tell us more about, you know, humanity. Now, when you create a science fiction story, you have to set it somewhere and some when. And that's what brings us to today's topic. I wanted to talk about some science fiction stories that were set in the years 2000 to 2021. So over the last 21 years, now not necessarily written during that time, but set in that time. Like this would be the futuristic setting because sometimes it's fun to go back and talk about some of the wild things that writers imagined happening by now. And sometimes they predict stuff that comes true in some form or another. A lot of times they predict stuff that we just don't have yet. And I don't mean for this to be a, hey, isn't it fun that they thought we would be using holograms by now? Although there are a couple of instances of that in this episode. But it's not meant to poke fun at the futurists who were imagining the world. Uh, In some cases, the writer clearly was thinking, what is a year that's far enough out from today that this could seem plausible? In other cases, the writer might just have arbitrarily picked a year because the year itself isn't really what's important. Like, you might say, in the distant year of 2009, but what you really just mean is, at a time that's in the future, right? So in some cases, I think a lot of science fiction stories, when they have a year, you might as well just replace that year with, you know, in the future. But we're going to ignore that. and We're going to poke fun at some movies and some of their predictions and not just movies, other stories, too. Uh, so I'm going to look at a lot of stories that were produced before the year the story is set in. So in other words, these stories have to at least on some level make predictions about the future. A lot of science fiction films are set the same year they came out. A lot of science fiction stories are set the same year they come out. So those become more like alternate present rather than futuristic. So I'm ignoring all those and I'm really focusing on ones that are more about projecting into the future. This also is not going to be an exhaustive list either because there have been a lot of stories that have been set between 2000 and 2021. Not as many as I thought there would be, or at least based upon my research, not as many as I thought there would be, but there's still quite a few. And I'm going to try and stick with ones that are either really famous or just super fun examples. So I may very well skip over some of your favorites. For that, I apologize. I cannot cover them all, but let's get to it. Um, and, and also, before I get into the 21st century, let's have a couple of honorable mentions in here. Uh, for example, George Orwell's 1984 is a phenomenal novel. It describes the world as being governed by 
giant totalitarian authorities who essentially have divvied up the world. And it's a world that's constantly under surveillance. Like the government is looking at everything that's going on. And the government tries to regulate not just what people are allowed to do, but even so much as how people are allowed to think. It's a pretty terrifying story, and it's one I think we can still recognize as being relevant today, whether it's in the form of authoritarian governments. I mean, you can look at some of China's initiatives and say like, oh, I see some similarities there. You could also arguably look at the UK and the United States and say there's some elements there too. We also have seen the rise of mega powerful corporations, which in some ways have taken on some of the aspects that Orwell had attributed to governments. Like we're seeing companies take on that kind of of, uh, role and take on that kind of power. We're almost four decades out from the setting of that novel. And, you know, we haven't quite reached the level of dystopia described in the book, but you can make a decent argument that a lot of the elements that were Orwell described have kind of crept into our actual world today. And granted, you know, some of those were things that he was observing at the time he wrote it, which was well before 1984. Another honorable mention I have to add in here is uh, the Star Trek original series episode Space Seed. The episode first aired in 1967, and the year in which the episode happens is supposed to be 2267. Uh, But it references something that should have happened in our past. It would have happened between those two years. This is the episode that introduced the iconic character Khan Noonien Singh. So in Star Trek lore, the world plunged into a global conflict in the 1990s called the Eugenics Wars. And Khan was one of several people who were part of a long-term experiment that was focused on selective breeding of humans, and the idea being that this is a process that would eventually produce exceptional human beings. Uh, Eugenics is a real horrifying thing. It's also an incredibly racist thing. It's it's bad, y'all. But anyway, this was sort of the thing that Star Trek was pitching it as. So Khan is supposed to be stronger and more intelligent than your average person. Uh, In later Star Trek properties, his backstory gets tweaked a little bit, so he's actually the result not just of selective breeding, but of genetic engineering. Because people recognize that any sort of selective breeding process would not progress to a point that you would have, you know, people with obviously superior human qualities within a couple of generations. That would take a very long time to really do, and again, eugenics is horrifyingly awful. Anyway... Within Star Trek lore, Khan and his genetically superior colleagues managed to conquer about a third of the Earth before they were defeated. And then Khan's crew escaped Earth. Most of the genetically engineered humans were captured and sentenced to death in the 90s. But Khan and his crew escape on a ship called the Botany Bay, and they go into suspended animation and just go on a trip out into space to escape their uh, capture. And then a couple hundred years later, the Enterprise happens across them. Now, obviously, a lot of the stuff that was predicted back in 1967 never happened. There have been no eugenics wars, thankfully. We don't have the ability to genetically modify humans to the point of guaranteeing that they are going to be stronger and more intelligent. 
But there are ongoing discussions in scientific circles about the ethics of genetic modification in general. Like, obviously, we've been doing a lot of work in genetic modification. Uh, the development of CRISPR is a great example. But we're still very much at the early stages of science when it comes to genetically modifying things. And more than that, uh, we still have these big ethical debates on at what point do you say this is too far? Uh, is it okay to do genetic modification if you are trying to make certain that someone is not born with uh, a condition that would otherwise uh, inhibit them or, or uh, negatively impact their quality of life? Is it okay if you go beyond that? If you say, well, let's make sure that they have certain qualities like blue eyes, or you go even further than that and say, let's make them stronger and more intelligent. This is an area that is thoroughly uh, investigated by science fiction, and it's one where we have real discussions going on today. Uh, as for other science stuff that happens in that that story, obviously we don't have a way to put people in suspended animation uh, certainly not with any way of halting aging completely and yet still being able to revive the person with no adverse effects. We don't have that capability. Uh, this is also an area of intense interest. I mean, cryonics is a real thing in the sense that there are people who are working on it. Uh, often the push for cryonics comes from rich people who are terrified of dying. But yeah, we haven't cracked that one yet either. Beyond all that, we don't actually have a spacecraft that humans could crew that is meant to escape our solar system, let alone just wander the galaxy. So yeah, Space Seed's plot depends upon stuff that just didn't happen, and much of it couldn't have happened. Clearly, the writers didn't, you know, they needed to have Khan's backstory happen sometime between the present day of 1967 and the Star Trek date of 2267. Plus, it needed to be far enough back in the history of Star Trek's world so that the average person in Star Trek wouldn't immediately recognize the name of Khan and know who that is just on the face of it. So I get it, but it's a great example of predictions made in science fiction that just didn't happen. All right, let's talk about some of the stuff that was predicted to happen within the last 21 years. And for the year 2000, I would like to submit the film Death Race 2000. This one was made back in 1975. This was a Roger Corman production. And Corman is one of those folks in Hollywood who really was able to stretch a dollar as far as it could go. Typically, his films are really low-budget affairs, but he's been behind some pretty fun movies. Like, a Roger Corman film is probably going to be super low-budget, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be good, or at least entertaining. I consider Death Race 2000 to be a pretty entertaining movie. Uh, there's a nasty satirical edge to the movie, a really nasty one, but I find it fascinating. So in the lore of the movie, the world went through a massive economic crash in 1979. Remember, this film came out in 75. That economic crash then made the United States unstable, and at some point the military overthrew the government and replaced the democratically elected representatives with a totalitarian military regime. Uh, the government also co-opted religion, so the state and the church are united. This was an effort to consolidate power. And to keep the huddled masses distracted, uh, the government has this incredibly violent coast-to-coast -coast race called the Annual Transcontinental Road Race. And it's meant to entertain people and redirect their attention so that, you know, 
They don't realize how bad things are, and they don't get smart ideas like demanding rights and stuff. So, the race has this brutal scoring system. Not only do you get points for, you know, being fast, you also get points for killing innocent people along the way. Like, if you run down a pedestrian, those are extra points. So, this is a way for an authoritarian government to retain control of a population. It also, you know, is a message saying... No one is safe. This is a really common theme in stories that feature dystopian features. I'm sure you can think of some examples yourself, but you can find it in movies like Rollerball, uh, The Hunger Games, Battle Royale, The Running Man, and many more. Um, One of the drivers in the Death Race 2000 movie is the government-backed Frankenstein, who is said to at least be part machine due to having sustained numerous injuries in past competitions. And that he's, while he's, you know, at least partly machine, he's also practically unkillable. So we've got some cyborg stuff going on here, except, spoiler alert, if you've not watched Death Race 2000 and you really want to, you probably want to skip this next bit, but it turns out that Frankenstein isn't just one man. Instead, the government finds someone to pose as Frankenstein for each race, and Should one of them die, they just get another person to pose as Frankenstein for the next one. So Frankenstein's outfit is a disguise, in other words, and it creates the illusion that the government has access to indestructible agents. It's another way of sending the message of, we're more powerful than you are, so don't bother resisting. Now, I won't spoil how the film ends, except to say there are a lot of kind of double and triple crosses going on and stuff. It's kind of bonkers. Uh, But the tech in Death Race 2000 isn't particularly outlandish. It's more about how society has devolved into this bloodthirsty and yet suppressed mob. And I'm sure, depending upon your own, you know, ideology, you might see some parallels in the real world. Moving on to 2001, we have, hey, look, it's 2001. A Space Odyssey. Uh, The novel and the movie are both considered classics, but they also project a level of technological sophistication that we have not yet reached, not even in 2021. Uh, We could probably forgive some of that because the stories that influenced 2001 came out of the 1950s and 1960s. The movie version premiered in 1968. So at that time, we were still just on the verge of going to the moon for the first time it probably seemed inevitable that we would continue to make incredible progress, right? Like we were already within the span of a decade making incredible strides towards the stars. So I guess like it seemed kind of natural that we would continue that momentum. So in the story of 2001, there's a lunar base and that's something we obviously don't have yet. NASA's Artemis program, in which the agency plans to return uh, and send crews to the moon for the first time since the early 1970s, has hit some snags. Uh, Currently, the agency says that a lunar landing will now take place in 2025 at the earliest. The original plan was to get there by 2024, but delays in various aspects of the mission have made that impossible. So no lunar base for us just yet. And there are those who question whether a lunar base is even a logical stepping stone, uh, but it exists in the film. Uh, Anyway, there's also a space station in the movie. This is obviously something that we have achieved, but the story also has astronauts traveling to Jupiter via spaceship. 
with some passengers in suspended animation. And we've already covered the suspended animation thing, but we obviously also haven't made any missions to go further out than our own moon, and we haven't done that since the 1970s, at least not with humans on board. We have sent you know, unmanned spacecraft much further out, but not with a human crew. In some sections of 2001, the Jupiter mission section, uh, spacecraft generate artificial gravity by spinning. So the spacecraft acts like a centrifuge. And when you've got a rotating mass, there's this pseudo force that we call centrifugal force, even though it's not a quote unquote real force. Uh, this is directed radially outwards from the axis of rotation. So if you imagine a bicycle wheel that uh, has a pole that goes right through the middle of the wheel and it spins around the pole, the centrifugal force pushes outward along the circumference of the wheel as this is 90 degrees out from the axis of rotation. So if you had a spacecraft shaped like a wheel and it's rotating, people could walk along the... Uh, the well, inner part of the, the, the wheel, but on the outer edge of it, if you, if that makes sense. Like if you were inside a bicycle wheel, your feet would be on the rubber that would be on the outside and you could walk around that way. Like you would have artificial gravity that way. The amount of artificial gravity would be dependent upon the speed of rotation as well as how large the spacecraft was. Uh, there are some problems doing this, however, because the magnitude of centrifugal force depends partly upon the distance from that axis of rotation. And that would mean that our heads, which are clearly a little closer to the axis, uh, would be experiencing a different amount of force than our feet would. So it would work from a physics standpoint, but you might not feel so great if you were to actually try it out in practice. The primary antagonist for 2001 is an artificially intelligent computer system called HAL, which, as everyone points out, means that each letter is just off by one from IBM. Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote this, says that's a coincidence. The system develops its own motivation and experiences something akin to fear as it pleads with the character not to deactivate it. So HAL goes ape and kills nearly all the crew before it is deactivated. But as it's being deactivated, it's, it's essentially pleading for its own life. While the discipline of artificial intelligence has advanced dramatically since the 1960s, you know, we are still as of yet not able to do anything close to what Hal could do. And there's an ongoing debate on whether things like consciousness and emotional motivation can even emerge out of technological systems, or if they can, what level of complexity we would first need to achieve in order for that to happen. There are other technologies in 2001 that have come true. Uh, there's a sort of tablet computer device that you can see in a couple of scenes. And obviously, that's a tech that we have today, though it would be a little bit after 2001 before we got one that was really practical and you know something that would work in the mainstream consumer market. Voice activation is in the movie. That's come a long way, and we've got numerous systems that work with that. Also, a lot of the stuff shown in 2001 is pretty darn accurate from a technical perspective. For example, there's no sound in space, right? Because you don't have enough particles out there to allow vibrations to carry in space. So Kubrick made sure that shots that were in outer space, uh, like in the exteriors, were silent. That was a good touch. 
When we come back, we'll continue our journey through futuristic stories that were off by just a hair. But first, let's listen to these messages. All right, before the break, we talked about 2001, which is widely considered to be a cinematic masterpiece. Uh, It's also a pretty divisive film. Some folks don't like it so much. They think it's a little boring. It's like watching paint dry. I might be in that camp. Uh, I appreciate the movie for what it is, but I do not find it very entertaining. I find it hard to stay awake watching it. That's on me. That's not on the movie. Anyway, our next film is definitely not a classic. It's a movie that did not do well critically or uh, commercially, and I am talking about Bicentennial Man. The film is about a household robot, uh, one that is bipedal. It has a human-like body. And over time, this robot develops emotions and motivations of its own. So it's kind of like Hal in that regard. Only while Hal became a homicidal maniac determined to complete a mission, the robot character of Andrew in Bicentennial Man becomes so sweet, he'll end up giving you cavities. It's Robin Williams at his schmaltziest. But if we distill the movie down to the basics, we could say that it's about a robot with artificial intelligence that gains sentience, self-awareness, and consciousness. And then how would humanity perceive that kind of a machine? How would humans react? Would they extend the idea of personhood to encompass an artificial being? Or would humans dismiss that as unthinkable and refuse to acknowledge that a robot's human-like qualities make it a person? These are questions that folks are actually asking right now. I mean, in the EU, there are committees that are dedicated into looking into the idea of granting personhood for robots and artificial intelligence should they reach a level of sophistication that would necessitate such a thing. Bicentennial Man starts off in 2005, and I'm sure I do not need to point out to you, we did not get intelligent bipedal helper robots in 2005. We don't have them now. And there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, We'll put the AI side apart because we already talked about that with Hal, so there's no need to tread over that again. But let's talk about bipedal robots. So we don't have a ton of these because, as it turns out, it's very hard to engineer a bipedal robot. Uh, Getting the robot to move so that it's not, you know, just falling all over the place is a non-trivial problem. Balance is tough. Maneuverability is tough. We do have some robots that are bipedal, and there are even some famous examples like Asimo, but, um, you know, they, they're still very limited. I mean, Asimo could actually run. It was a little hoppy run and made it look like Asimo really needed to get to the little robot's room pretty quickly, but it, it had its own limitations and restrictions. It was largely under, you know, manual control or very, very limited autonomous control. That's part of the reason we typically see robots that depend upon wheels or treads to move around, because those components are far less complicated than legs from an engineering perspective. They work on a simpler principle, and they're easier to repair if things go wrong. If you're looking at ways to simplify your robot design, getting rid of legs is a no-brainer. However, a lot of human environments work best if you have legs. By the way, this is a big problem, not just for robots. I'm talking about accessibility in general. It's why we have laws that are meant to guarantee accessibility because otherwise 
people who depend upon tech like wheelchairs to get around would find themselves locked out of a lot of experiences. I mean, they already do, but it would be even worse. And while we've had some progress on making the world more accessible, the fact is that the default design choice tends to favor people who can walk around. Stairs are just a simple example of that. Well, that's a pretty tough challenge for robots, too. One of DARPA's robotics challenges was for groups to design a bipedal robot that could complete several tasks autonomously, including doing such things as operating a vehicle, opening a a door, walking through a doorway, picking up a power tool, using the power tool appropriately, and so on. And even things like opening a door, which would be a pretty trivial task for many people, became a big engineering challenge. And walking through the door was another big one. There are actually lots of videos of several robots just plain tipping right over at that point. Uh, this challenge ha- happened a decade after 2005, after the, uh, the setting of the beginning of Bicentennial Man. So from a basic robotic standard, we're far off from having that become a reality. I'm not going to comment on the quality of the movie, but the argument on whether or not robots should be granted personhood is a really interesting one. And it's also uh, an idea that pops up in the film AI, And as I mentioned, it's kind of an ongoing discussion here in the real world today. Now we're going to jump ahead to 2010, mostly because very few well-known futuristic stories were set between 2005 and 2010. But that means now we have to talk about 2010, the year we make contact. This is actually the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, The film 2010 came out in 1984. The book came out two years earlier. And yes, I know this sounds confusing because I'm using lots of years here, but it was a a 1980s version of what 2010 would look like. Anyway, nine years have gone by since the events of the first film, and there are a lot of questions that are left back on Earth. And the big ones are, what the heck happened out there? Uh, All those astronauts died. What happened to them? And then one of them might not have died, but definitely disappeared. What happened to that guy? So 2010 obviously has some of the same issues when it comes to the predicted tech that we saw in 2001, so we're not going to go over all that again. Interestingly, it also assumes that in 2010, the Soviet Union is still a thing. In the film, the US and the USSR are entering into essentially another kind of Cold War space race. In this case, uh, a mission to find out what the heck happened in the events of 2001. Of course, the real Soviet Union dissolved in the early 1990s. It did not exist by 2010. The movie answers the question about why Hal went bonkers in the first film, and it turns out that the crew were unknowingly on a secret mission, and that mission had not been laid out to them, so they didn't have any awareness of it. Hal, however, was aware of the secret mission, but was supposed to keep that under wraps while appearing to facilitate the cover story mission, the one that the astronauts thought they were on. But that meant that there was a conflict with HAL's programming because it was supposed to be a transparent and honest system, and that brought HAL into an irreconcilable quandary. The computer system was obligated to follow its mission, but that mission included parameters that would violate the system's programming, so HAL snapped. Now, setting aside the AI issues that we've already discussed, this touches on another common element in speculative fiction, that of artificial intelligence encountering some sort of problem or scenario that subsequently causes it to harm people. Uh, 
one of the basic ideas in Western science fiction goes to the three major laws of robotics as defined by Isaac Asimov. They state that first, a robot cannot harm a human or allow a human to come to harm by failing to prevent it. Second, a robot must obey any order given to it by a human, provided that it doesn't violate the first law. And third, the robot must protect itself as long as it doesn't conflict with the first two laws. But science fiction is full of scenarios in which AI causes harm or even leads to extinction-level events. Uh, the classic, perhaps most cliche example of this is the idea that you create a supercomputer and you your hope is that the supercomputer, which is far more intelligent than any human being, will be able to solve massive real-world problems. So... It will be able to do things that humans can't do, that humans aren't smart enough to do. And then you tell it to bring about world peace. And then the supercomputer comes to the conclusion that the only way to guarantee world peace is to wipe out all of humanity. That way there's no one left to declare war on anyone else. The classic sci-fi cliche. The other stuff that happens in 2010 goes more into the realm of fantasy than science fiction. So I'm not going to get into the rest here. Uh, it's definitely a very different movie than 2001. It's less poetic. It's a little more narrative. I don't think it's a better film than 2001. I do think it's one I can watch more easily than 2001. All right, but let's move up to 2013. I thought about including I Am Legend in this lineup. That actually came out in 2007, but was set in 2012. Uh, however, there's not really any tech to speak of in I Am Legend, and we're currently living through a global pandemic, so I don't think we really need to talk about a fictional version. So instead, we're going to talk about, and I can't believe I'm following up like 2010 with this, but John Carpenter's film Escape from L.A. It hurts me to talk about this movie. I would have much preferred to talk about Escape from New York. I know that Carpenter thinks Escape from L.A. is a superior film to Escape from New York. Uh, I respectfully disagree. The film Escape from New York was set in the late 90s, so it's outside the window for this episode. But Escape from L.A. is a lot like Escape from New York, but not as entertaining, in my opinion. It was made in 1996, which actually was the year before the setting of Escape from New York. Uh, the basic premise is that over several years, Los Angeles descends into crime and chaos. It's a lost cause. Then there's an earthquake, and that causes Los Angeles to effectively become an island separate from the California mainland. And then there is a dictator who declares himself president of the U.S. for life, who then seizes control and he uh, declares that Los Angeles is effectively a prison. He has walls built around the city, and if you break any laws in the United States, well, you're going to get sent to L.A., where you have to just kind of try and survive. Anyway, the main character is Snake Plissken, who's a former military man. He's become a nihilist. He doesn't really believe in anything. He, he detests the world as it has turned out to be. And he's also a criminal and he's going to be sentenced to Los Angeles. But he's offered a par pardon if he can retrieve a remote control that controls a satellite-based weapon system. And this weapon can blast targeted regions with an electromagnetic pulse that's strong enough to disable you know, electrical systems. The dictator of the United States plans on using the weapon on his various enemies around the world, uh, essentially kind of setting him on a path for world domination. 
And to make sure that Pliskin plays ball, the government injects what they say is a virus that will kill him within 10 hours unless he gets an antidote. Uh, This plot, by the way, is almost identical to Escape from New York. The particulars are different, but the idea is, is virtually the same. Some of the technologies shown in the film include that satellite-based EMP, or electromagnetic pulse weapon. EMPs are real. In fact, they really happen in nature. And a sufficiently powerful electromagnetic pulse can cause electronics to overload and fail. Uh, If it's powerful enough, it can damage electronics to the point where they won't work anymore. You'll have to repair them or replace them. So lightning is one type of an electromagnetic pulse. Uh, A coronal mass ejection, or CME, from a star like the sun can create a magnetic field strong enough to be an EMP. That's why you'll hear about times where there's a lot of solar activity potentially interfering with electronics here on Earth. Nuclear explosions generate EMPs. Uh, A really powerful pulse could cause power lines to snap. You would have an excess of electrical current and voltage in the power lines. They wouldn't be able to handle it, and they could snap right then and there. Uh, Computer systems are particularly vulnerable to electromagnetic pulses. So an EMP weapon is not just possible. It's something that exists, and it's a lot of of militaries around the world have worked on refining them over the years. Because if you have a weapon that can destroy communication infrastructure without actually causing physical destruction to the region itself, that's a super high-value weapon. That being said, I am not aware of any system that could produce a powerful EMP blast that you could base on a satellite platform. Um, It it essentially just becomes a laser gun weapon in the movie. And I can't think of a way where you would be able to do this uh, unless you had like nuclear explosives in orbit. Even then, you would have to really find a way to direct that pulse to have maximum effectiveness. The movie also features a personal holographic projector that's capable of producing a three-dimensional hologram that's convincing enough to fool people who are standing in the same area, right? Like if you were in a room and someone were using this, you would think that that was actually a person there, not a hologram. That's how effective it is within the movie. Uh, It even casts a shadow behind it in the scene where it plays a big part in the film. Obviously, we have not developed that kind of technology. There are some pretty nifty effects that we can create to simulate holograms under very specific conditions, but generally speaking, this is way beyond our capabilities. Uh, Oh, also, one of the actors in the movie would later go on to become the Countess of Devon. True story. It really did happen. All right, we got a few more stories we want to talk about, but first, let's take another quick break. Okay, we're up to 2015, and it's time to talk about flying cars. In fact, those pop up a couple times, but this is the first one, and you knew we were going to have to get around to it, because 2015 is when about half of Back to the Future Part 2 takes place. Um, If you've never seen the movie, well, first you've got the first Back to the Future, which follows a character named Marty McFly as he accidentally travels back from 1985 to 1955, and then through some misadventures, has to figure out a way to make his parents fall in love with each other, or else he'll never have existed. So it's your classic temporal paradox scenario. But in the sequel, which came out in 1989, Marty's friend and mentor, Doc Brown, 
convinces Marty, 1985 Marty, that he has to travel to the far-off future of 2015 in order to help Marty's kids. Uh, at least that's the first section of Back to the Future Part 2. So we get to visit 2015, and things are a little different from our real-world version of 2015. They are a lot more day-glow, for one thing. A lot of, like, fluorescent colors in, in the Back to the Future 2 version of 2015. Uh, also, homes come standard with fax machines in that version of 2015. Now, maybe in the late 80s, that seemed like it was a realistic outcome, but obviously it's not what our, would be in our most homes today. I mean, there's no need for them because we have plenty of electronic systems that don't require paper or toner. But email was not something that people were really thinking about in Hollywood at 1989 levels. Restaurants in the movie have a robo wait staff, and there's a there are a few novelty places around the world, a lot of them in Japan, that use computers and robots in order to serve food, but they are really a novelty and an exception, not the rule. I will say, however, that wait staff is one of those roles that robots and automated systems could potentially thrive in. And I say that because we're talking about an environment that has a limited set of variables. Like if you can only order from a menu, that means you can't just walk into the restaurant and order anything, right? You couldn't walk into like a Mexican restaurant that didn't have pizza on the menu and say, I want a pizza. You typically have to order off the menu. Now you might be able to order something off menu if the staff like you and the chefs in the back don't mind, but only if the restaurant actually has the necessary ingredients on hand. So robots work well in environments that have a limited number of variables. Like if they have restrictions on variability, robots do better. It's when you start adding more variables that it becomes more complicated for a robot to operate. Whether folks would ever see robots as being useful or you know pleasant to interact with on that level or whether they would even make economic sense compared to, say, hiring human waitstaff, those are other matters. Like, technologically, it's probably not the most difficult thing in the world to do. The question is, does it make sense financially and socially? Like Escape from L.A., we see holograms in Back to the Future 2. Uh, there's a film marquee for a Jaws film that has a holographic shark emerge from the screen to seemingly attack Marty, which startles him. Uh, it's a pretty cool effect, and it is possible to create a 3D effect with a screen without the need for 3D glasses. Uh, lenticular displays can do this. Uh, however, this is a pretty limited effect, and typically you need to be positioned in a sweet spot in order to experience it. If you move a little bit to the left or to the right, the effect changes. You don't get the proper images that are directed towards your eyes, and it will look all messy. From personal experience, I can tell you that looking at 3D glasses, or rather 3D displays that are glasses-free, it's not fun. It can actually bring on some eye strain. It is just, it's possible to do. It just wouldn't happen the way it does in the movie. There's also the hydrator oven in the movie that turns like a hockey puck-sized pizza into a full-sized cooked pizza in just a matter of moments. The movie doesn't bother to explain how this works, but I mean, the name hydrator suggests that you're adding water to something in order to make it expand to the appropriate size. And simultaneously, it's somehow heating up the pizza at the same time. Uh, not sure how that works. Uh, heat transfer isn't magically instantaneous. Uh, I, so I don't know, but they don't bother to explain it because it's just, it's just a fun little accent. It's not 
<laughs> it's not meant to be analyzed the way I'm doing it. I'm the jerk here. Then there are all the flying machines, like hoverboards and flying cars. There's, again, not a lot of explanation about how these things work. Presumably, the hoverboards are generating some sort of electromagnetic field that counteracts gravity somehow, although I can't even begin to imagine how you can make that be a thing. Now, you could use something like superconductivity to magnetically lock something into a specific position over a magnetic track, but that would require cooling the, the, the something down to levels of around absolute zero to get it superconductive. It's not really practical. <laughs> it's really hard to do. And you would be limited to the magnetic surface itself. So in other words, like you could have a track and you could have a uh, superconductive magnetic hoverboard over that track and it would hover and you could push it and it would just effortlessly slide all the way to the end of the track, but it couldn't go off track because it has to have that magnetic base to work. It has to be locked into a magnetic field. If you go outside of that, you lose the effect. And obviously we don't have those magical flying cars today, let alone back in 2015. We do have some cars that can fly, though the word car is being a little bit generous. The most common variations I see are quadcopter-like designs. So think of like a quadcopter drone, that is a drone that has the four propellers that are you know, kind of like the four corners and the, around the drone, only, you know, supersize it, make it big enough so that you could have a compartment where a person could sit inside of it in the middle. Um, there are tons of companies working on making flying cars a reality, mostly with the goal of creating a ride hailing service similar to like Uber or Lyft, in which customers pay to fly across town without having to deal with street traffic. But that technology is going to hinge not just on making the stuff safe and reliable, but also creating the regulations that will guide how the tech can interoperate with, you know, the rest of it, the environment, like a city. You're going to have to have rules for that. Otherwise, the potential for disaster is just way too high. Uh, and to me, the biggest piece of technology from Back to the Future 2, and really the end of the first Back to the Future, is Mr. Fusion. This device presumably uses fusion to generate electricity, and it's enough to provide the 1.21 gigawatts of power for the DeLorean's time circuits. Fusion involves fusing atoms together. It's the process that the sun goes through, where it, uh, it fuses hydrogen atoms into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. The process requires a lot of energy to get started. Like, you know, with the sun, you've got this intense gravitational pull. You've got really dense system there uh, and incredible temperatures. So it's got this amazing amount of energy that can sustain this process. But here on Earth, I mean, it requires a lot of, uh, of energy and pressure to get this thing started. And yeah, the output is potentially even more energy, but sustaining that reaction is very challenging to do. Scientists around the world are working on developing practical fusion reactors. So far, the amount of energy needed to start and sustain a fusion reaction is greater than what we get out of it. Like, we can have a net positive outcome on an individual reaction, but sustaining it so that it, we can do something useful with it, that's a different matter. If we can get through that, 
that will be a transformational change for the world. Uh, I don't think, however, we're ever going to see fusion reactors that can be small enough to be incorporated into the electrical system of a vehicle, nor can I imagine a need to do that. And to be fair, the tech of Back to the Future 2 was always intended to be whimsical, and some of the stuff we've seen in the movie has kind of come to pass, just not necessarily in the way that it showed up on screen. All right, let's close out this list with the movie Blade Runner. Blade Runner came out in 1982, but it's set in the year 2019. It's a science fiction film noir kind of movie. Now, if you've never seen it, you should totally watch it. It is an amazing movie. I will warn you, there are some very slowly paced moments in that film. Like, there might be some bits where you find yourself saying, get on with it, as you watch people very slowly walk around a building for what feels like an eternity. But the premise is really neat. So in this version of 2019, you are in a densely populated and dystopian Los Angeles, and there's this big social problem. So humanity has developed a way to bioengineer synthetic humans. So they're kind of like androids, but they're not robots. They're made out of gooey, fleshy stuff. I mean, I guess you could call them robots in the sense that they are more like the robots of the original Rossum's Universal Robots, which was a Czechoslovakian play from the early 20th century. They have a lot more in common with those than with uh, the Danger Will Robinson style robots that we think of today. But yeah, we call them replicants in the movie. Uh, and the reason that humans even made replicants is the same reason that we typically make robots. It's so that we have something to take care of the work that is one of the three Ds. That is dull, dirty, and dangerous. So these synthetics, these replicants, are meant to take on jobs that traditionally humans would have to do. But it's not very fulfilling work. And it can be very dangerous and both physically and mentally, and have a negative impact on the people who do the work. So the idea is you offload that work to a machine. So in this case, the machine is a synthetic human, and they are not considered to be quote-unquote real. The replicants are meant to be used off-world, not on Earth, in other words. But four of them have escaped and made it to Earth in order to experience Earth, and a former police officer who specializes in identifying and tracking down replicants, which is a, a specific job called a blade runner, is essentially extorted into eliminating these four replicants. Now, I'm not going to ruin the story. It is worth seeing. And it has some of the most beautiful imagery in early, like, 1980s science fiction. Also has one of the most famous speeches in science fiction films of all time. But let's talk about the tech. Clearly, we can't create synthetic human beings right now. Uh, there's been some amazing research and development in synthetic organs or replicated and 3D printed organs. That stuff is absolutely amazing. Scientists are creating bio-friendly scaffolds, and on these scaffolds they can then print tissue structure. So that research could potentially lead to a future in which we use stuff like uh, a patient's stem cells to create 3D printed synthetic organs and use that for stuff like transplants. So if that panned out, it would revolutionize transplant surgery. Uh, you, potentially, you could cut way down on the risk 
of the recipient's body rejecting the new organ because if the organ is created using essentially tissue from the the donor, like the actual patient, then the body is, at least the thought goes, more likely to accept the new organ. But yeah, we're, we're not able to make a fully synthetic human being. The replicants on the run in the film are classified as Nexus 6 replicants. Google got a little cheeky when through its Motorola Mobility division. It, it no longer has that, but it did at the time. Uh, it developed an Android phone, and it was codenamed Shamu, but when they released it, they called it the Nexus 6. Cute reference. And Blade Runner also features flying cars, just like Back to the Future 2. And like Back to the Future 2, how they fly isn't important, so I can't really comment on the proposed methods except to say, obviously, we don't have it in real life. The film features stuff that would be out of place in the real 2019. For instance, the main character looks through tons of Polaroid photographs, so today he would more likely be looking through a folder of digital images. He also uses a machine called an Esper, which can analyze a two-dimensional photograph and then produce views of stuff that are in that photograph that are from other angles. Like, imagine you've taken a still photo of a table. So you're, you're standing on one side of the table, you take a picture, you use this thing, you could theori theoretically look at the table from a 180-degree change in, in view, like you were standing on the opposite side. Now, computers can do some pretty cool stuff, but doing that in real time isn't something we can easily manage. And also you know, we would really just be looking at a best guess scenario. Like the computer would be guessing what the other side looked like. It wouldn't really be useful. All right. That is just a quick rundown of some science fiction movies that made predictions that have not quite turned out the way people envisioned. I hope you enjoyed this uh, rambling discussion of science fiction. I like doing episodes about sci-fi occasionally. Uh, it's always fun. If you have any movies specifically you would like me to really dive into and talk about from a technical level, like the tech that's either went into making the movie or the tech that's displayed within the movie itself, let me know. Or any other topics, I'm eager to hear your thoughts. The best way to get in touch is with Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 